Hey, this is Steve Balton, and you are here on My Turning Point, where this week our special guest is one of my favorite artists of all time, the incomparable Maria McKee. She's about to release her first new album in 13 years, La Vita Nuova, and we're very fortunate to get to go and hang out with her at her L.A. home, talk about the record, the massive changes in her life. She has had some real turning points. Why the break from music, coming back after so long, her admiration for Bowie, how her life has changed. This is a fascinating, really revealing in-depth interview. And for any longtime fan of Maria McKee, of which I know there are many, this is a can't-miss interview. Hope you enjoyed as much as we did. Mm. Everybody has a lot of turning point moments, mm. but I'm sure you have, you know, some like you know that stand out or or whatever, and because you, you've gone through a lot of turning points. I mean, yeah, it's for me the biggest ones. The biggest one for me was the one recently where I came out and we invented my marriage, and you know, been living half the year in the UK and. You know, um, just just sort of integrated myself into a queer family and just became an advocate for my charity. I mean, all of that stuff has really changed my life in major, major ways. And making this album was a big part of that because it kind of was the map to direct me when I didn't know. I couldn't see in front of me. I just knew that I was miserable. And uh, the only way that I could save my life was to write songs. And I hadn't done that in so long because I just sort of like had sublimated that part of me to live according to what I felt was the safest way to live for me, to be sort of buttoned down. I'm not even sure why. There was no pressure on me to do so, but I think I was afraid of the part of me that was creative because I associated it with my mental illness. And they are inextricably linked <laughs> because for me, part of how I um, navigate my trauma is to write and to make art. And I have, I'm, I s- struggle with and am medicated for obsessive compulsive disorder so, and also ADHD. So for me, writing is very, it's, it, it, I go down this tunnel and I can only go there if I'm obsessed. And um, for me, I was obsessed with finding the answer to how to live because I knew I wasn't happy. And the only way for me to do that was to write. So was there one song early on in the writing of this record that sort of opened up the floodgates and, and sort of pushed you in the direction of, as you put it, how to live? Was there one song that was sort of a, a turning point in this record? Um... They all came at once, interestingly enough. I had an experience that reminded me of my youth. And it um, it started to snowball into, like, the, I, I mean, I would only say, I would, I would relate to it as like a Proustian moment, like the Madeleine, where all of a sudden everything comes rushing back and you're basically at, you know, you're just held in thrall by this reverie, and and it was it it also created an extraordinary heartbreak for me, um, because I felt the sense of regret 
and longing that was like I think it was it was a combination of you know um, living um, sort of this comp hat lifestyle which was not me and I was realizing and also um, in a partnership that I value and I'm still a member of um, but um, was um, aromantic and platonic and um, mostly a best friendship Um, so I was sort of like it was when I started writing it came from like this sort of longing for, for for the memory of desire and for me, it was sort of like a memorial to desire and longing. That's how it started. And then it turned into, for me, I was excavating. And while I was doing that, I was like building a map to how I wanted to live. And it wasn't until the album was completed that I realized it. And the week the album was finished, I met a woman who became my first girlfriend. Nice. In my post-hetero life. (laughs) You know, it's such a, I mean, it's such a fascinating thing and there's so many directions to go in. And it's interesting because over the last couple of years, I got to talk with Matt Johnson from The The, who's one of my favorite bands of all time. I love The The. Great songwriter. He also took 18 years off music, wasn't mm-hmm. writing, wasn't working. And then after his brother passed, it's interesting how artists like you kind of go back to it. You reach this point. I also spoke with Steve Perry from Journey, who hadn't made music in over 20 years. Mm-hmm. And then after his wife passed, he decided to make music. It, it's, I guess what I'm saying is it's fascinating how you can sublimate it, but as an artist, you're still going to turn back to what it is you know mm-hmm. in those moments of crisis. So for you, as you started to do it, were you surprised at how quickly it sort of came back or how comfortable Absolutely you Absolutely shocked. Because I, I had gotten to the point where I was sort of thinking I would sell my guitars and I sort of considered myself very retired. And um, I, you know, my husband is an f- independent filmmaker and he's extraordinarily gifted and I was really in awe of what he was making. Um and the art that he was making. I was in awe of how he managed to self-start this entire new career um, at his age and become this filmmaker that was actually, like, receiving, um, you know, accolades from, like, really people who know about film and um, attention and, like, film festival submissions and reviews that, like, that were, like, you know, for for his $5,000 movies, which are poetic and beautiful. And so I was really committed to being a part of that journey. And uh, and I, I started out as an actor, like, when I was a kid. I had an agent, and I was, like, in theater school and all this stuff. So I had assumed that I would just go to New York and become, like, a musical theater actor. And that's why that's, my music is always sort of has echoes of, like, Sondheim. And, you know, there's this, there's this foundation that I'm working from, which is the first, like, 15 years of my life, which was... You know, I grew up thinking I would be Bernadette Peters. So, um, so when he started writing roles for me in his films, it was really interesting for me to go back to acting again and to be really, really involved in the process of co-producing these films with him and like being a part of the casting process and the production process and then the soundtracks and then the music for the films. So I was really like, you know, the ADHD and the obsessive person was really focused on that. And then I started doing like almost like running PR for the films and getting them to film writers that I admired and, and stuff like that. So it became really like my focus for many, many, many years. And then he wrote... 
I said, you know, why don't you, I, I would like a bigger role because I, I, up until that point, I had just been doing ensemble work with him and playing like um, supporting characters um, and being more behind the scenes. And I said, you know, I really want, can you write me like a woman under the influence, Jenna Rollins type? Can we do something? I, I want to sink my teeth into a big part. And, and so he had several ideas and we chose the darkest one, the most nihilistic journey that this woman could possibly go on. And that was the one, that, that was the script that we pursued. And we made this film, but it took us like two years. And it was really intense. It was like, he had sort of a, I mean, he's, he's, he's an intellectual, so he's, and he's, and he's a, he reads philosophy and writes philosophy, so he's 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 an existentialist. So he's always having these sort of crises, you know, <laughs> and then writing his way through them. And so he was having another one of those, and he was reading Ernst Becker and like um, the terror management theory philosophies and stuff like that. And so he wrote this script as a way to sort of soothe himself through this crisis. And he cast me in this role, and then that catapulted me into this crisis. So it was like I refer to it as almost as like a, a creative Ouroboros, like. <laughs> where we're just like eating our own tail and like you know inspiring these you know having these moments of crisis and then like creating the work to get through them and then spurring them in each other and so yeah so this role I mean it was like I mean she goes through hell and back I mean it's almost like a Lars von Trier like it's that dark but funny as well because he's funny and so it's like this David Lynchian journey that this character goes on and it was it was I couldn't shake the experience. It was like, and I think that was part of what was brewing when I hit the wall and had to pick up the pieces. And the only way I could do it was to write songs. So part of it was, you know, part of what inspired this journey was playing this character and doing this film. And, I, and, we're, and we're shelving it for the minute because we're trying to figure out with identity politics and everything, <laughs> where it fits, you know, because in some ways, it's basically a woman who is suicidal and she becomes obsessed with a serial killer, like a Jack the Ripper character. So already there's problems <laughs> with that. <laughs> but it's one of the most feminist films I've ever seen because the lead character is a 50-year-old woman who's wildly intelligent and her interior monologue and her dialogue is so brilliant and so poetic and she's genderqueer and she's queer and she's fearless. So in some ways it's like a revolutionary female character in a film. But in other ways there's like this, you know, violence and, you know, sex workers being murdered and, you know what I mean? So, yeah. so you know, so it's like it comes through being correct, but the journey to get there is challenging. And so we're trying to figure out if it's just that we just did it for us and if we can't put it out and can't stand behind it. Or if we're just going to say, you know what, art is art. It doesn't reflect our ideologies. <laughs> it's hard in the sort of post-identity politics era to um, convince people of that now. Because if they hear a character speaking dialogue, they'll immediately go, oh, that's the filmmaker's point of view. And it's ridiculous. Because it's like, imagine if Taxi Driver came out today. How would you? It wouldn't. That's the thing. Yeah. It, so, wouldn't, it wouldn't come out to, you know. It's so funny. I was, I was just <laughs> talking with my friend on the way over here, and I was cracking up at, um, you know, 
there was a Garth Brooks thing that came out yesterday. And I like Garth Brooks. I've interviewed him. He's a great guy, really nice guy. This was the funniest fucking thing I've seen in terms of people's sensitivity. Mm-hmm. He wore, he played in Detroit, right? Mm-hmm. So he played in a stadium in Detroit. So he wore a Barry Sanders jersey. Barry Sanders is one of the greatest running backs of all time. He was in the Hall of Fame from the Detroit Lions. Mm-hmm. But he wore, the back of it said Sanders 20 because that was Barry Sanders' number. Mm-hmm. So all these Trump supporters thought that he was endorsing Bernie Sanders and there are all these people if you read through his Instagram who are like I never would have guessed this of you I will never buy your music again you're terrible you know like I thought you loved your country and it's like he wore a football jersey of a famous player because they didn't know who the football player is you know they're just like ready to culture cancel him, and that's the society that we live well, in. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't really. I mean, as far as like the right and culture cancel, like I don't, I can't, I don't even, I can't even. It's like so not my world. Do you know what I mean? I like, can't <laughs> imagine that. But as somebody who's extremely left, and you know, I, you know, I'm an advocate for trans rights because of my charity. I'm queer. I'm, you know, like so. I it, most of my closest friends are sex workers. A lot of them are. So it's like. I I tow a very 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 you know hard line and so like I that's one of the reasons why I need to watch the film again and see if I'm comfortable with it being released and my name being on it you know and I'm curious to know how that's going to affect me and I'm also wanted to screen it for my friends as well to see how what sort of sensitivity there is around it you know and I because I'm sensitive to that I'm very sensitive to that. Um, so, um, but at the same time, I would love to be able to kind of come back to the art is art, you know, and it doesn't necessarily, just because a character is speaking words doesn't mean that there are <laughs> the words of the person who created that character. Well, what's interesting about it, though, is, is what's fascinating to me from the art is art standpoint is that even if the film never comes out... Look at the revolutionary role it played in your life. Yeah. So it still had yeah. a, it still had to me that shows it still has value as art because yeah. it still triggered, you know. And then without the film, then you know, the album wouldn't have come out. Yeah. None of this would have happened. Yeah. So in that respect, it's interesting because either way, it's still, you know, I, to me, so much of the point of art is to learn, and especially I'm always fascinated this with the, from the writing standpoint. Yeah. Because as a writer, it's funny you said it, it wasn't until the album was finished. Mm that you realize that it was sort of a map of how to live. But I talk about this with artists all the time, right? Writing is from the subconscious. Mm -hmm. So it's usually not until you have a chance to go back and look at it that you pick up on all these things from it. Yeah, Yeah. You know? So it's interesting tying it back to the music. I mean, were there particular things that emerged? Or when you say that it was a map on how to live, Mm. were there things that really emerged that that surprised you? And I want to go back to you, by the way, and I'm reminding myself so I don't forget, because it was interesting what you said about the Sondheim Mm. and the theatrical. Because mm-hmm. this to me was, well, all right, well, I'll come back to this first and then we'll mm-hmm. come back to the other part mm-hmm. so I don't forget. But it's funny because, you know, you showed me when we were walking up the pictures of your aunt and uncle who inspired Panic Beach, mm-hmm. which obviously there's that vaudevillian sort of feel to that. Mm-hmm. But I remember you and I talking about Life is Sweet. You know, we spoke mm-hmm. for that album and it was at that point that you were sort of starting to see the theatrical stuff mm-hmm. come in. And mm-hmm. to me, what I love about this record is that it feels like an extension. Even though it's been 13 years, it still feels like your work. But Mm -hmm. it is a much more theatrical record in terms of sound. Mm -hmm. But it just feels like the natural extension of where you were going. Well, it's interesting. I kind of, I I weirdly see Life is Sweet and La Vita Nuova as bookends. 
Um, I feel like La Vita Nuova is a more grown-up, sort of polished version of Life is Sweet. Sort of, I mean, Life is Sweet, was I was still young enough to have been influenced by what happened um, with music in the 90s, you know, PJ Harvey and Suede and Nirvana and all of that. And when Kurt died, it really affected a lot of us who grew up with punk rock. And he was sort of like our little brother who, like, bridged the gap between pop and punk, you know. And so when he died, it was really, really, really impactful for so many of us. And um, I was young enough to still have been very influenced by that. And so Life is Sweet for me was kind of like, wait a minute, like, I grew up with punk and, like, I'm, you know, I'm fearless that way. And I always you know had that spirit but it would sort of been evened out by you know by the heartland rock of lone justice and then this, this the really sort of polished muso english folk of my first solo and then the and the sort of return to like roots americana with um sin and then and sin to get saved and so for me life is sort of reclaiming that sort of fearlessness you know and um and I think that, you know, while I was writing it, I was listening to Bowie a lot. And, and he, you know, he, he'd always been pretty much kind of my touchstone, even when I was a teenager before Lone Justice. And, you know, um, because of, uh, of how he um, assimilated and, um, you know, um, his theatrical influences, you know, even not just a songwriter, but the way he sang as well, and managed to do it in a way that was like rock politically correct. You know, so it was like, <laughs> um, which is really hard to do, because um, most people who you know appreciate rock and roll and write about rock and roll have an allergy to anything that's like too theatrical or too Broadway or too West End, um, especially if you're a woman. If you're a man, you can get away with it, like Bowie and. And um, Freddie Mercury and stuff like that. But for women, it's always like, oh, no, who does she think she is? Um, you know, um, Andrew Lloyd Webber's, like, muse or, you know what I mean? There's always that, that's, this. That's interesting because, I, that, you know, because it's funny. Uh, later on, though, you got these artists like Sebastian Bach from Skid Row who, you know, went on to do Jekyll and Hyde, you know. And I'm by no means a Skid Row fan, although I, Sebastian's a nice guy. But it's just interesting that you had these rockers who, like, these hard rockers who went in it. But as you're talking about it, I'm thinking about it, and I really can't think of a female rocker who did go in the theatrical vein. You're right. I, there's no one who comes to mind. Well, I mean, there were in the 70s. I mean, Laura Nero and Kate Bush and, and you know, and, and people like that who were, I mean, Kate Bush, I mean, every one of her records is like a musical, you know? So, I mean, there, there were, but like in the post-punk era, not not as not as much, I don't think, you know? And it's, I can't it's, think of any. And I always feel like a little bit with the American critics, my solo work has always been kind of held a little bit at bay because of the theatrical influence that they feel is too too Broadway or too you know and and I, I love that, you know, like mm -hmm. I mean I love Jim Steinman and I love you know what I mean? So like you know, I'm always like I said, pretty fearless about that. I don't really care, you know. And this album has that same sort of unapologetic theatricality. Um but like I said, what's interesting is it's carried. And now I'm just thinking, like to myself. So maybe then a Tori Amos, who was heavily, yes, her, heavily yeah. influenced by Kate yeah. Bush. So yeah. yeah, that makes sense. I then. consider her, and even Joanna Newsom to some extent. I think is has a real cinematic. Um, not as because I mean I always kind of go back to like, and for me with this album, I really set myself a task to write in an almost academic songwriting style. Um, that would be more like a, like an operetta. And one of my favorite movies is Topsy Turvy by Mike Lee. 
So that's fascinating um, to me. So because of the, the, as we talked about that, you know, in a sense, all of this came about from a film. And because, as you say, there's sort of an operatic style to this. And, you know, obviously, I'm sure there's, as we talk about it, there are probably some through lines through this. Would you ever do like a film version of this or, or something of that nature? Or? Well, it's interesting. My husband and I are talking, we've been talking a little bit. He has been sort of mulling around the idea of doing a film musical and the next film possibly being a musical because he's finishing a, a one right now, the one that, that he did after the one that we just did together two years ago. Um, but but he's kind of he was I don't know what he, I never know where where his next film's going to come from because they kind of just descend upon him. Um, but he has been we have been sort of mulling around the idea of of, of a musical. Well, what's interesting as well too because one of the fascinating things is and I talk about this with artists all the time, right? Is that you know the the quote unquote rules of putting out music have changed so drastically in every way, shape, and form. But what's also interesting is it allows a lot more creativity. So you're looking at artists like Springsteen, who's like my favorite, right? Mm-hmm. He didn't want to tour for Western stars. So mm-hmm. he's like, no, nah, fuck that. I'm going to make, a, I'm going to record one concert and make it into a concert film. So mm-hmm. there are so many different ways now for artists to promote and do things. Mm-hmm. So it, there, And there's it's so much easier now to do film in terms, like you said, your husband does these films for like $5,000 that are amazing. Mm-hmm. So it does seem like it would lend itself well to a, a film version of, and the, sorry, the reason I haven't said the name of the album is because I'm going to butcher the fuck out of the pronunciation. <laughs> oh, La Vita Nuova. Thank you. Like, and my, um, speaking of La Vita Nuova, yesterday Christine and the Queens, who of course we stan because... The Queerness, fabulous, punk rock. Um, they announced their I EP. I saw this on your social media, yeah. Yeah, they announced their EP. A surprise announcement. <laughs> their their new EP, La Vita Nuova. <laughs> and like, I've been getting like inboxes going, what is going on? How is this possible? And I'm like, it's queer synchronicity. It's like <laughs> magic. It's, you know, it's zeitgeist. It's, but it's like, it is quite interesting that i mean it's such a bizarre reference it's i mean i don't know maybe they've been reading dante as well and um you know because mine was a you know homage to la vita nuova by dante which was sort of the template for the records because i was writing about the muse and the, the you know the muse from afar the unrequited desire the beauty of the beloved all of these sort of themes that the philosophy around Dante, which was the after his writing, which was called the the Fidelity d'Amour, which is a philosophy that, when writing, when writing from a place of that kind of desire, you can elevate your consciousness to a sort of um, gnosis, which is like the divine communion. And I was actually experiencing that, I was sort of having like these sort of heavenly kind of experiences writing this album that I couldn't really explain and 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 sort of uh, you know almost writing the wave above the temporal and going into the ethereal and and so it's possible that Chris was writing that same wave <laughs> <laughs> and you know caught La Vita Nuova it's I mean I'd be I'd be curious to read about their interpretation of what La Vita Nuova means um in regards to the concept of this EP, because I mean, mine is very high concept. It was, it was. I knew that the album was going to be called La Vita Nuova years ago when I started writing. When and did you start the, writing it? Um, in in um, February of 2017. Okay. So yeah. See, that's fascinating to me as well, and this goes back to what we're talking about the subconscious. So that was three years ago now, mm-hmm. three years ago this month. You've mm-hmm. gone through so many changes in that time because mm-hmm. everybody does. Mm-hmm. 
Are there songs that you go back to now and have a different appreciation for? You look at and you look at the songs from this album, Love You to Nuova. Mm-hmm. Not too bad on the pronunciation. Love you to Nuova. Yeah, no, pretty good. <laughs> and you go back and you hear them, and you're like, okay. You now look at them with the perspective of three years and realize, you know, I had no idea I was thinking that until you can look at it now with this distance. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I was rehearsing this song on the album called Courage last night for my show. I'm doing a benefit in London. And um, I... Um, I swapped the um, pronouns on that song to she, her. And so it's a love song to a woman. And I wasn't, even though I've always identified as bisexual, I, I was raised compat, compat, Christian, Christian, like really, really nailed into my consciousness. Um, and I, you know, and I also had the experience in the Christian church of like confessing feelings for girls at school or whatever, and then being exercised and brought before the prayer group and them casting demons of homosexuality out of me. So, you know, my coming out journey has been long and laborious. Um, and even though I've had feelings for women, you know, prior to coming out two years ago, <clears throat> um, I, I hadn't really written many songs about that. And, the song Courage was not consciously written about a woman that I knew, but it was written for Beatrice, the Beatrice of Dante's poetry. And so I describe this extraordinary woman that I'm too shy to confess my feelings for. But this was before I'd come out. And now when I sing it, it takes on this whole other meaning. Um, and it, in, in, for all intents and purposes, could have been written about the girl that I, the woman that I fell in love with after I made the album. So it was almost like a premonition in a way. See, that's fascinating to me. And the reason I was smiling as you mm. said that there, are, I, I remember talking with Nick Cave, who's one of my favorite songwriters of all time. And we yeah. talked about the fact that, you know, to him, he talks about, I always, he, he said something to me that was so interesting about how he always writes what he's longing for. So when he's happy is when he writes sad songs. And when he was sad, is when he would write a song like Into My Arms. Mm -hmm. And it was, and I was talking about it with other artists since, because it was just fascinating to me, but they were saying, and it makes sense, that a lot of what you write about in your art is sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes. It's, it's willing it to come true. Yeah, yeah. So did you find, yeah. so that's no, interesting. No, it's interesting, because, I, because, of, because of the whole Dante Beatrice thing, I, was, I wrote a lot about this, you know, this, this sort of imaginary muse that I, was, that, I, that I was sort of envisioning as I wrote this album. It was a sort of Italian, you know, because of the Beatrice and Dante thing. So I described this this muse who has like dark hair, dark eyes, this sort of melancholic beauty. And you, you know, when the when my the woman who I had my first you know queer relationship with showed up at my door for all intents and purposes, she was Beatrice. So it was it was you know, and and as I said, she showed up literally probably the week the album was finished. Um, we had exchanged a few DMs and then made a date for tea and fell in love like that day. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, yeah, so it was really, it was like a magic sort of manifestation in a way. That's cool. It's really mm -hmm. interesting. It's funny. So then as you go through the rest of this record, are there other things that you are starting mm -hmm. to either see come to fruition or other things that you realize that until you, you know, had the courage to write about them. Because I'm sure also part of it mm. is very simply admitting it to yourself. When you put something down, when you write it down, mm. in a way, and I'm saying this as a writer now, you can't lie to yourself. Once yeah. you put it down on paper mm -hmm. or on computer or record whatever it is, mm -hmm. you're admitting your own longing for it. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think um, it's it's yeah. I mean, living. Um, you know, post-compulsory heteronormative <laughs> marriage, <laughs> you know, um, it's difficult for people to understand my marriage because so many people in the press have said, oh, this album is about the dissolution of her marriage, which isn't, it, I think it's hard for people who live in straight time to understand queerness and polyamory. Um you know, I'm still very much in partnership with Jim. It's just very, very different. It's We're still very much family, and we always will be. It's just not a typical marriage in that sense. And um, so, you know, I, I have freed my heart to follow desire in whatever shape or form it takes, um, which has been liberating for me as a poet <laughs> and as a very as a person who sort of operates according to certain spiritual principles and spontaneity and art and travel and family it's i i don't really like to be particularly defined by <laughs> labels um but also i find that my labels labels such as being pansexual being polyamorous have freed my life and allowed my life to have a certain kind of spiritual spontaneity, which works for me. Well, I was going to say, it's so fascinating, I imagine as well. And again, this kind of becomes a chicken and the egg thing. Was it, you know, opening yourself up and admitting all this that freed up the songwriting? Or did all the songwriting and learning all this stuff, it's fascinating to me because I would imagine they have to be tied together because if you were sublimating a big part of yourself, mm -hmm. you're also, it's hard to be honest as an artist so you're also sublimating your art. Well, it was <clears throat> the art was cracking open that door. It was it was it was showing me, you know. And and what and it's interesting. One of the pervasive themes, I, I believe, of the album that you sort of have to listen to and listen for and kind of tune your ear toward if you're listening to the lyrics is 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 the is the maternal longing and the regret of not having had a birth child. Um, which didn't occur to me until it was no longer possible for me to have a birth child. And it was like all of a sudden I, I, I hit the wall and, um, and I, I was like, oh, that decision has been made for me. Because I always, maybe in the back of my mind, up until the end of my reproductive cycle, had sort of thought, hmm, you know, because I mean, Jim and I had always gone, should we have a kid? No, no, we like our life, we like our art, we like our freedom. Let's just keep it the way it is. Let's just have dogs, you know. I, I had godchildren at the time who are no longer a part of my life, but um, at the time I was, you know, had a devoted relationship with um and so I thought, you know, I'm satisfied. This is cool. But then, um, you know, you reach a certain age and that decision is made for you. And once that decision was made for me, I had an unexpected reaction. That was one of grief. And that is part of the writing of this album, too. Um, and, and since embracing my queerness... Um, I have opened my life to, um, which is it's very very it, it's it's quite typical in queer friendships to have intergener intergenerational friendships, um, and so I have a lot of people in my life who are incredibly close to me who are of the age 
that I that that I you know would would be the same age as a child that I would have had. So a lot of really close relationships with people in their twenties, and it's been. I'm very what I realize now maternal, and so I have extraordinary fulfillment in these relationships as a mothering figure. And um, so that's been a part of this journey that's been really important to me as well, is to, to really deal with those feelings, recognize them, sit in the pain of that, let it go, and then go, okay, well, how, what am I going to do with this part that wants to mother? And, you know, there's plenty of opportunities in queer community to mother. And it's been transformational for me and the people in my life. And, and it's also reciprocal. Um, because so many, so many young queers also, um, are, you know, because the heart is open, um, are capable in so many ways of mothering me back. And so it's it's um, it's been a, it's been a beautiful um, journey for you know for us both. So, um, and and I think in some ways it saved my life and gave me purpose. Well, it's so interesting because then as as you've gone through all this and you're learning all of this stuff. You know, and I would imagine in a way, even though it, it's a cliche, it probably feels like a creative rebirth. So, are you still writing? Is it still does it, does it open up all these floodgates? Because now you have all these new experiences. Yeah, it's that- interesting. I have not been writing. Really? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Because it's fickle. The muse is very fickle, and I don't. I don't really know. Like for me, it it's such a. I ne- I, I, I never know where it's going to come from. That's and fine. I don't pursue it. I don't go into my room and write every day unless I'm unless I have to. Unless something is unless something is exploding inside of me and I need to get it out. So, I don't I don't know. I uh, will it be another 13 years? I don't know. Will it be will I will I all of a sudden be have like, you know, 50 songs explode upon me like happened with this? I mean, I literally wrote like almost 40 songs for this album. I don't know. Could that happen next year? Could it happen next week? I literally don't know. Mm-hmm. It's mysterious. And I've never, ever wanted to be a work-a-day songwriter. I never wanted to be somebody who just wrote every day because it was my job. That's not art to me. You know, so I don't know. That's fascinating no to me. Well, you mentioned you're doing the London Benefit. Yeah. I know you said you don't really tour anymore. Are there plans to no. do other shows, or are you? No, I don't tour. I will do the odd show, and it will. Um, I I will just um, put the check into my charity. I have a charity um, that I started that I'm trying to get off the ground, which is very very hard if you don't have a nonprofit status. But what's the charity called, by the way? It's called See Me Safe Facial Feminization Fund, and it's. Um, Facial Feminization Surgery Fund. It's 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 basically a, a funding platform <clears throat> for trans women and, and trans feminine individuals who are self-funding their facial feminization surgery, which is a really important part of medical transition for some for some people who are pursuing medical transition because it's um and it's and it's misunderstood in straight community because people assume that it's cosmetic surgery, which it's not. It's a prescription for dysphoria and really important. So, um, so it's, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I, why I chose such a specific (laughs) funding platform because I wanted to raise awareness as well. So, so, um, so when I play, it's, it's, you know, it's going to be for that. (laughs) It's just going to be, 
you know, so, um, you know, and touring is just hell. It's, it's, it's hell. It's just not, it's not humane, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You wouldn't put a dog through that, let alone a human being. Yeah. So, you know, I, but I, li- I mean, I'm, I like to play in a city that I know where I have people that I love attending, um, which London is, <clears throat> you know, I mean, I have like a giant community of, of young LGBTQ and trans and gender non-conforming people who um, are, uh, you know, are part of my shows now, which is really beautiful for me because, like I said, I'm a big mama. And um, I can feel that energy when I'm on stage, um, which is, which is, you know, so, so I will play a city where I can have that energy working. It's funny you say that, that though, because I've talked with bands who you know split up and then reunite after several years or whatever. They haven't toured for years, and mm-hmm. one of the things they talk about, you know, obviously it's different for you because you've developed these personal relationships. Like you say, you're this big mama, so you have these friends who come out. Mm-hmm. But just talking with artists like an Afghan Wigs, for example, or Iggy and the Stooges, who I'd interviewed, who reunited, and they were talking about the fact one of the things that made it exciting for them mm-hmm. was playing to audiences that never got to see them because there's this hunger, and so you're seeing you, you as an artist. You're capturing the hunger of the fans who are so excited, and that excitement carries over to the stage. And like a perfect example is My Chemical Romance, who just did the Shrine, right, and mm-hmm. great show and all this, and then they sold out four nights at the Forum. And it's like this was a band who never did bigger than like eight thousand, ten thousand seats before. Mm-hmm. But there is this energy of people who are so excited. So when you play at this point, I imagine as well, because it's been when was the last time you played LA, for example? I, I feel like mm, it's probably, probably what, fifteen. Yeah. Well, no, that's not true. That's not true. I played, I played when when Jim released his last film. We we played because the drummer is also an actor, and our drummer is also an actor, and so it's really really cool that we show the film. Jim directed. He's playing bass. The drummer starred in. He's playing drums. I'm also in, and I'm singing. So it's like this cool kind of like collective. And and so when we screened Jim's last film, The Ocean of Helena Lee, at the Egyptian at the American Cinematheque, we performed. That was like three or four years ago, I think. Okay. Maybe four, no, four or five years ago, maybe. And then we did a run, a small run of the film downstairs in the Spielberg Theater, and we performed acoustically every night after the screening. And that was the last time we did like an active gig in Los Angeles so yeah and in New York I don't think I've played New York in probably 20 years maybe 15 no 12 because I sang with Gavin Friday at his benefit at Carnegie Hall that was I don't know if you were at that but that was 12 years ago um but I do love Gavin yeah he's one of my besties um yeah so I mean I don't play I just don't it's hard. I just don't. And um, I, because I, I, I make albums so rarely and I tour so rarely, the chances of crossing over to a younger audience is probably, I mean, it's happened because of the people I know who are younger. And the word spreads in the queer community about the advocacy work I'm doing. So I have people coming around um, and, 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 you know, sort of becoming newer, younger fans because of that. But it's not enough to, like... Sustain a tour or, yeah. No. I mean, I, you know, if I, pl- if I were to play in, like, say, like, I don't know, Philly or something, it would be 100 people who were, like, in their 60s. 
and maybe like three or four queer kids who heard about me on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Which is, you know, so it's like, it's different when I play in London or New York where I have friends who are discovering my music for the first time. Um, it's it's cute because like in in the UK, for instance, in the in the younger queer community, the song that they would know is "Show Me Heaven," which was not popular in America, but was a, was a number one like karaoke hit in the UK and Europe in the nineties, in like ninety. Like 1990. So a lot of these kids that I know now in London grew up with that song. And then when I started coming around on the scene, because of my advocacy work, they put two and two together that I was the lady that sang this song that they all grew up like (laughs) hairbrush singing to. So it's become kind of like a little anthem in the community in London. And so I'm I'm asked to sing. I sing it at Trans Pride. I've sing it at their events a lot. And it's become kind of like our little like get your lighters out and sway and sing along song. So it's really, it's become like a queer anthem now in the, in the UK, which is really, really cool. So, um, so that's kind of like the connection that the younger fans have made with my music. That's like the first kind of way in, you know, so it's cute. So whereas, that, whereas that's not the case here because nobody knows that song here. Yeah. This is always fascinating to me though, because I talk about this with musicians all the time. Right. And the thing is like as an artist, and going back to what we're talking about, the subconscious, mm. what happens is, you know, as you grow and you change and, and you go through all these life things and you have all these sort of moments in your life, you know, you look at, you can start to look at your own music with sort of the perspective of a fan because you distance yourself from it so much. It's almost like another person wrote it. So are there songs yeah. of yours that you can have, like you have an appreciation for now that you're like, all right, you know what? Now I can look back on it, you know, 20, 30 years later. And like you mentioned specifically looking at Life is Sweet as like a bookend. To this album, yeah. Yeah. Life is Sweet is my favorite, I think. I mean, this new one is my ultimate favorite of my records because I love it. But before this album, Life is Sweet, I think was my favorite. I love High Dive too, but Life is Sweet. I don't know. There's something about it. I think I'm really proud of my guitar playing on that and um, just the bravery of like smashing up my Americana brand in such a violent way losing the support of so many journalists and fans I mean Robert Hilburn championed me starting when I was like 19 you know and when I released Life is Sweet he was literally apoplectic I mean he just <laughs> couldn't even he, he was angry about it, you know, and like, do you know what I mean? It was yeah. like people were just, you know, it was it was it was it was madness. I mean, people were fans were baffled, and I think People Magazine voted it like the worst album of the year, you know. And yet, and yet, so many other people, like Mojo Magazine, voted it like best album of the year after Beck or whatever. It was like number two on their critics list. You know what I mean? So it was like a real demarcation line album. Um, and, and so I'm proud of it for those reasons. I think it was really kind of like a ballsy thing to do, you know. Well, it's also interesting, though, looking back on it, I would imagine you find as well that it was just a necessity to sort of free yourself up, even if it would take many years later. Because it's funny, I mean, again, this is something that comes up, and when you look at an artist like a Neil Young, you mentioned Bowie, for example. You know, my, probably my, well, besides Springsteen, my other favorite artist is Tom Waits, and mm-hmm. that guy's had 27 careers. Yeah. You know, and I just think that it's interesting that people were so angry about it, because it's become commonplace now, like you were just ahead of your time, it's commonplace now for artists to shift 
have seismic shifts. But even when you look at Neil Young in the 80s, mm-hmm. he certainly did it as well with a record like Trans mm-hmm. and all this mm-hmm. stuff. So it's interesting that people had such a vitriolic reaction to it because it's like it's normal as an artist to change yourself all the time. Yeah, I don't know why people didn't didn't I don't know why people didn't wouldn't allow me that sort of freedom. Um I I think it has to do with being a woman. I hate to maybe the music business has changed in that regard. But I don't know, or maybe it was because I was seen as a sort of fabrication of the industry, as something that was sort of dreamed up by Jimmy Iovine and Geffen Records. Um, and, you know, it's sort of like, um, oh, wow, the puppet has its own voice and limbs and, you know, Pinocchio has come to life and there's no strings. And I don't know, maybe people just had like a weird reaction to that. I, I'm not sure. I think he said something though interesting when you talked about Hilburn, who, by the way, was my editor at the Times and he brought me in there and a good mm-hmm. guy. Mm-hmm. When you talked about him championing you from 19, mm-hmm. I think it's part of his when you started out and so people felt so invested in you. Mm-hmm. So it's as you change, it's kind of like they felt, you know, it's interesting because I remember you and I talking about this in the past and I just went a couple of weeks ago to see Sinead O'Connor, which was an amazing show. She's, she's one of my favorites. That yeah. show was fucking mind-blowing. She's, she's a real deal. And it was amazing. But what was interesting was watching it and talking about it and, and thinking, you know, because she, you know, dealt with fame at a very high level at, mm-hmm. at that time was a young age of mm-hmm. 22. Mm-hmm. You know, and in the 90s, being world famous at 22, mm-hmm. it's a lot. People have a hard time processing that now when you have people like Billie Eilish, who I love and actually am friendly I with. I love her, I love her. You know, and she's amazing and Phineas is a friend. And, and then you look back even a few years at like Bieber at 13 and it's like, yeah. but yeah. when you guys came up and you were making music at 18 mm-hmm. and when mm-hmm. Sinead O'Connor had a number one song at 21, yeah. that wasn't fucking done. Yeah. It wasn't common. So I think it yeah. was, in, you know, dealing with that level of fame at that point. I think I I think I must have sensed I think I must have sensed that fame would have been very dangerous for me because I'm quite intuitive. Because I I feel like every time I would sort of get close to a breakthrough where there would be like a <clears throat> some sort of like say showcase for radio or or some important event that would be like a like a, you know um a kind of turning point in in establishing more of a commercial career I would sabotage it in some way or I would move to Ireland or I would do you know (laughs) and I think I think that you know there was a part of me that knew that I would not have been able to handle fame and I I prohibited myself from achieving fame Um, and any sort of fame that I've had quote unquote fame or a hit song or whatever has been has been a total accident that's my dog. Yeah, I know, I know. I was laughing because the dog is like, "All right, now I'm ready to get out." And it's funny because when we did this, when we did the recording at Flea's house, uh-huh. his dogs were running through, and we were playing ball with them yeah. as they were running. Through, and we're like, "Oh well, if they tear out the cords, you know, yeah. the dogs come first. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. always the dogs come first. Yeah. But I think you know, since the, I don't want your dog to be trapped in the room, is there anything that you want to add? We didn't talk about. Um, not really. I think we did pretty well. I mean. Um, covered it a lot yeah hey this is steve balton and you have been here on my turning point with special guest maria mckee you know when i told you at the beginning of this show how revealing and in-depth this interview was did not lie hope you have enjoyed it as much as we did and thank you so much to maria for her generosity for sharing so much and really opening up and telling us so much about what's going on do not missed the chance to check out La Vita Nuova. It's a great record, 
very much in keeping with Maria McKee's longtime career, but Maria McKee for 2020. So it's really a record that I highly recommend. Thanks. Infinity High Sports Bra. Its ergonomic design is molded to support the natural movement of your body. With cord out padding, the better breathability eliminates extra bulk without sacrificing support. And quick dry padding is Under Armour's fastest drying padding yet. When you're lifting heavy, running fast, and pushing yourself further than ever before, you need a bra that will help you go that extra mile and make you feel your best. Shop the Infinity High Sports Bra now at UA.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 